Mini episode 1088 of the FDH Lounge is brought to you by Sportsology, delivering unconventional columns and webcasts about sports, TV, music, movies, and more. Follow them on the web at sportsology.com. The FDH Lounge. You want to schedule your life around it. A long time ago, on a gloomy, wet Cleveland spring night, two men stand alone amidst the late night drizzle. Their voices echo across the vacant station parking lot as they debate the merits of the great American radio show that have been missing for far too long. On that night, an idea was born. That idea became the FDH Lounge. Welcome to the FDH Lounge. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FDH Lounge mini-episode number 1088. You have two of your original FDH Lounge dignitaries with you here today, Rick Morris and Chris Galloway, and we are calling this the review of a hard knocks season and uh, evaluation going forward. The Browns, of course, the hard knocks team of 2018. You saw them featured on HBO and uh, really became media darlings from that point onward. And again, having Baker Mayfield in the mix, that didn't hurt either. So the Browns, after years of futility, capped off by an 0-16 season, only the second in the history of the league in 2017, becoming national media darlings at the outset of 2018, and a wild, unprecedented ride that followed from there. Who could have thought that the goofiness of hard knocks wouldn't even begin to get us set for what we would see subsequently? And one of the tiniest bit players of hard knocks, Freddie Kitchens, is now going into 2019, your new head coach of the Cleveland Browns. Chris Galloway, a wild ride, and uh, again, 365 days removed from the end of 0-16 and the craziness and the bitterness of that kind of a season, uh, much, much better the next year, particularly if you isolate it to the second half. But who could have forecast everything that was coming off of 0-16? Well, I don't think anybody necessarily forecast the uh, the ups and downs of this season. Um, you know, it, uh, uh, and good morning, by the way. Good morning, sir. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think, um, I think Wild Rides great way to put it uh you know we started off you know browns fans actually i think for a team coming off of a franchise coming off of four wins in three seasons uh you know let's step back and ponder just how historically wretched that is uh considering you had teams in the nfl that frequently win four games in one month um you know the browns coming off of the last three years having won four games uh, front office changes, coach changes, uh, then obviously hitting absolute rock bottom at 0-16. I found the, the Browns fan base, by and large, to be very optimistic coming into training camp. I think that fans that paid attention saw that there were pieces in place uh, that made this team probably better than, than, it, than it was by record. I know you and I discussed the last two seasons, the Hugh Jackson era, uh, that uh, we both believed that, you know, this team should have won more games than they did based on the talent, and that, in fact, it was the coping that was the problem. I think that was has been borne out to be 100% accurate. Uh, you know, even Chris Palmer, in, with those terrible French, uh, expansion teams in two years, won more games than Hugh Jackson managed to with a better roster. Right. So I think Browns fans overall, at least what I found, were somewhat optimistic. I think part of that is, well, you can't get worse than 0-16. 
and uh, seeing that there were pieces in place, I think there was a belief that there was nowhere to go but up. I myself had predicted the team to go 6-10, and 10, and um, thought that that would show some very good growth against what was going to be, a, at least on paper at the beginning, a difficult schedule for an 0-16 team, uh, probably a bit unfair by the NFL. And, um, you know, we had some we had some great moments. That Jets game, you know, Baker Mayfield taking over the pound, bringing the team back to victory, the almost victory in New Orleans, the Browns doing something in week two that really nobody did this year. Nobody beat the Saints in, in New Orleans this year. Right. Uh, Browns should have, if it wasn't for our inability of our kicker to kick uh, even the most basic field goals and extra points. And so I think we all immediately saw, even out of the gate, uh, you know, the tie against the Steelers that could have been a win, could have been a loss, but it also could have been a win. They should have beaten the Saints. Baker Mayfield taking over in week three, leading the Browns back on Thursday night against the Jets. I think we came out of the first three weeks as fans, uh, that that excitement of, of training camp, of thinking we had something, we had some talent, we had a core. Um, I think at that moment, in week three, we were, uh, were excited and with good reason. Uh, that they, that there was, they, this team was maturing, they, some of these guys were playing up, and we finally looked like, you know, after that Jets game, oh my gosh, cross your fingers, we might have a franchise quarterback. Then we kind of bottomed out. Um, coaches got fired, new administration came in, I think it was a proved to be a good decision to bring Greg Williams in as the interim. And, you know, to his credit, he steadied the ship and got these guys to toughen up and to buy in. And, um, you know, and now we are where we are with even more lofty expectations going into 2019 off of an eventual 7-8-1 season. And as you mentioned, the bit player in hard knocks, Freddie Kitchens, uh, now suddenly finding himself as the head coach of the Cleveland Browns after, you know, at the end of the day, he sees opportunity through performance. And you can say that Freddie Kitchens did just that in 2018. A guy who's been in the NFL as a coach for 14 seasons, he's coached under some greats of, you know, Bill Parcells and Nick Sabins and Bruce Arians. The guy has learned a lot. And he had his chance. He had his moment. He was elevated to offensive coordinator, and he, and he showed what he could do. And he, he built a bond with Baker Mayfield and also this team. I think that's obvious from the reactions you see from a lot of defensive players on social media uh, that, uh, you know, they're very excited about Freddie. And, and so, um, you know, Freddie's, you know, you know, carpe diem. He sees the day. He did. It was an unbelievable job that he did, a guy coming from nowhere. And again, i got to admit, at the time, and I was pissed that Al Saunders wasn't taking over the team and taking over the offense, but again, Greg Williams' beacon of stability. Of all the unlikelihoods of 2018, I don't know where that slots in, but that's way up there. But it was the case. I want to circle back to something you were talking about with the schedule. The schedule, of course, and we'll, we'll delve a little deeper on this in a second, proved not to be as hard as it looked on paper at the start of the year, in part because of the collapse of the NFC South this year. Uh, So it turned out to be an easier schedule than we all thought it was going to be. But this was something that I pointed out, and I pointed this out on Twitter, 
at midseason, and this is something that I remember, it just made your head explode when I pointed this out. I remember it back, because again, you, you play the NFC division, every division, every four years. I remembered when we played the Atlanta Falcons in 2014. That was the pre-Thanksgiving weekend. My dad and I were on a drive down to uh, Atlanta to see my brother's family, uh, as we so often do. We had stopped off at uh, a rest stop at the Kentucky-Tennessee border. That was where the Browns put away that uh, uh, that game to go 7-4. and four. So people say, oh, 2007, the last great year of the Browns, or halfway great or decent. Decent is what measures for historically great in Cleveland when it comes to the Browns in the last 20 years. But 2014, people forget that team, was 7-4. and four. When the Browns played the Falcons four years later in 2018 and won the game, it was their seventh victory since then. If you would have told me on that day in 2014... The team will not win a game the rest of the year. It'll win three games the next year, but that's going to look positively great compared to the two years after that where they win one game combined and start off with two wins and a tie in 2018. Uh, I would have said, good Lord, take me now. Seven wins since that win to put them 7-4 and four in 2014. That says it all. Well, I think what you're pointing out is why it's, first of all, hats off to Browns fans. For coming into this season so positive, and I, I think you saw it as well. Yeah, and, and, and maybe it's delirium. Maybe it, maybe it just had no it had no sense of logic, right? Mm-hmm. But there were there was a lot of talk of, and, and the national media thought you know Browns fans are crazy. People saying, "Hey, if our quarterback plays pretty well, you know we could compete for a playoff spot, a wild card." People were saying that, and you know, people would look at you know Cleveland Browns fans like you're out of your mind. But the reality is, is that real fans, real analysts, local analysts, um, you know, not the you know not the hacks of the local fish rat, but most people really diving into this could see that there was something brewing, right? And that the culture was changing, and it, it wasn't superficial. There was really change. So I think people were were excited. Um, I think that's also why the national media misses it now and, you know, thinks Browns fans are somewhat idiotic for being ecstatic about 7-8-1. and one. You know, the reality is winning seven games in four years or four games in the last three and going 0-16, 7-8-1 looks and feels like going to the Super Bowl. Yes. Browns fans had something, as you know, Browns fans for – for multiple years now, you know, we would watch a football game on a Sunday, and by the end of the second quarter, as the halftime was rolling in, we're all getting up and going off to do yard work. We're done for the day. We watched our one hour of football. We're disgusted. We walk away, and, and that's it. Um, never felt like any week you actually really had an opportunity to win. One, you know, there were a few games here and there you think, boy, I think we might be able to win this one. But by and large, you knew every week you were going to lose, and you were going to see bad football that did not look like the rest of the NFL. And this year, that wasn't the case. Listen, as awful as he is and was, even under Hugh Jackson this year, this team at least looked like a real football team. Right. And that's a tip of the cap to John Dorsey and getting in, in 31 new players on a 53-man roster to start the season. He turned this thing over and said, we have got to get better in every position, 
and no, there were no sacred cows. And uh, no, I didn't agree with every decision. Right, me neither. But at least this year, Browns fans saw a product on the field that was competitive every single week, other than the Chargers game. Um, they were competitive every week. They were in the game, and Browns fans had a reasonable expectation that they could win the game. That is a wholesale sea change um, for what we have been subjected to um, for seasons on end, really for the bulk of 20 years. Yeah. And so I think that's what that's what national media misses in terms of the enthusiasm of Browns fans at this particular point in time as we finish 2018 season, which is we have a real team that competes with every team week in and week out, and we have an expectation that we could win any game we're in. That is a real change. And, um, you know, I think that's why you're going to see higher expectations going into 2019. Very much so. And you talk about expectations. To put this in perspective between you and I, you look at, again, I sort of date the collapse of the glory days with this team as really starting in 1990 because the Belichick years were by and large nothing to write home about. I know people like to talk about the fluke season of 94. I never put any credence in that. That was just a team that played above its head. 89 going into 90 is the last time I ever looked forward to a Brown season. I can't wait for the next season to start. The Raymond Claiborne holdout in the summer of 90 was sort of a precursor for the collapse that followed. That team got old overnight. To put it in perspective, you and I met and got to be friends in the fall of 90. I have to go back to the beginning of when you and I became friends 28, 29 years ago, which seems forever. That's the last time I look forward to a Brown season. You've not known me since, Chris, as somebody who's looked forward to a Brown season the entire year. This is the first since then. No, the entire time I've known you, you sort of have this sort of melancholic. Yes. Like, well... It's another brown season. You know, maybe we are, you know, we can win a couple games and not embarrass the city. And, uh, you know, and I get it. I mean, look, I'm, I'm, I haven't been a Browns fan as long as you. Now, the irony is, you know, growing up in New England, um, I was a Cowboys fan mm-hmm. uh, because my mother was a Cowboys fan. And when you're a little, little kid in the 70s, you know, you don't know anything. You're, you know, you're. Cowboys were America's team, and your mom rooted for me. Watched them every Sunday, right? You know, I didn't do any better. So I grew up as a Cowboys fan. And you know, the irony of that is, as a teenager in the 1980s, when were the Cowboys terrible? 80s. Yeah, exactly. They were terrible, right? So that was my teenage years till college. And then when when we were in college, my Cowboys, you know, bumping the chest, finally got good under Jimmy Johnson and won some Super Bowls, right? Right. So as you know my personal history, so I moved to Cleveland in '96. And the Browns were gone. And in, the Browns came back in 99. So I was kind of new to Cleveland. And I adopted Cleveland now as my new team. Cowboys became my number two. I adopted the Browns as my top you know, rooting interest in 99. And I have been subjected to nothing but, you know, as the French would say, merde, for 20 years as a Browns fan. This is all I've known. And... You know, I, like you, now, when this season ended, was so, you know, I, normally I was, for 20 years, I have been in the position of, boy, I can't wait for this season to be over. Can we start talking about the draft? Um, I was so disappointed when the season ended. I was like, can, can we, 
can we get hurry up to the next season? I want to watch the Browns again. So like you, and not as much suffering as you, but um, I've been there with you. And for the first time in my Browns fandom, I am looking forward to a potential playoff run. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think it's I think it's realistic. This is a team that finished a game and a half out, being coached half the year by Hugh Jackson, which is the very definition of playing half the season with one arm tied behind your back. And they still finished a game and a half out of the playoffs. By the by, these these stories about. Uh, how we pick up our secondary teams in childhood. It, it, it's always interesting. It's always a great story no matter who you talk to. In my case, uh, you know, it, picking up in the late 70s and then into the 80s, Miami is my 1A team. Uh, when I had to get glasses as a kid, back in the day uh, before uh, adults were concerned about such things as bullying, he said with no small degree of bitterness, uh, you know, <laughs> Like, Bob Greasy was all I had. Like, Bob Greasy was a guy with glasses that went out there and, like, to me was like a superhero. So that's how they became my 1A. And I, and I had a great aunt and great uncle that lived in Fort Lauderdale, and they would send me Miami-area newspapers and stuff. And so, you know, that was it all. Was it because of, of Lake County's uh, favorite son, Don Shula? Uh, was well, that a Northeast Ohio guy? That wasn't what didn't. I thought that I've been a Don Shula fan also, but Bob Greasy is what got me into it, just like Steve Eiserman is what got me into the Red Wings. Generally, it's a player that will kind of do it, at least in those two instances. And yeah, that was that was like all Bob Greasy. I don't know if I've ever really delved into that before or not. You know, I said I was. No, gonna... I never understood the. Gen- I never knew what the genesis of your your dolphin um, secondary fandom came from. Certainly, you're not a Miami guy, so no. I, could, I didn't know. You know, no. Um, and now it, we'll save it for another. We'll save it for another FDH episode. Okay. But someday you'll tell me the story of how you also came to be a Tennessee Volunteers fan. But save that for another for another time. That'll be a teaser. I'm wearing my long sleeve Tennessee shirt, by the way, as I'm recording this, which is funny. You know what? I'll tell you now because it's not even anything that big. It's it's a combination of uh, I was a Carl Pickens fan when he was there, and it just like I just sort of like fell in love with the stadium. It's a great stadium. It's a great scene down there in Knoxville. Although I've never been there on game day, that's on my bucket list. I know you've been there. Uh, Which I can't even understand because the Bobcats have played them twice in the last six years. I've been both times, and neither time did you make the trip. Yeah, although I, I would have repped for the Bobcats, though, because I'm school first, as we've established on the show. You know, the team... Well, I would have expected nothing less. Exactly. Team colors. It's just kind of a thing of, like, somewhere in the early 90s, I just sort of decided I was... That's the most random one of all. I just sort of decided I was a Tennessee fan. So that one, you know, I, I can't even really ascribe that to anything. But, you know, circling back around here, I said I was going to get in a little bit on the Browns' schedule. I'm going to put all these metrics out there for you, It is, and you talk about whatever you want to talk about out of these. Again, it is a tale of two seasons within one season, so it's hard to know what to make of this total. But our FDH Ultimate Quantitative Baseline, we've been doing this with FantasyDraftHelp.com, our sister brand for years now of uh, taking a a statistical kind of deep dive. In that sense, when it's in fantasy, we usually use standard deviation from the mean as a a means of of measuring these things. Here, we're just putting all these rankings in a blender and averaging them out at the end. Browns were 14th in our final power rankings. They were 18th in uh, DVOA, 17th in offensive DVOA, 13th in offensive yards. 
They were 12th in defensive DVOA, 30th in defensive yards, a gap which right, shows pause that... right there. Yeah, bend but don't pause break. Right that's what that's all about, right? Well, that's bend but don't break, but the 30th ranking under the traditional model... Yeah. That's why, that's why Greg Williams isn't with the team anymore. Um, you know, point blank, he probably, barring uh, this team going 7-1 and one or something like that, was not going to ever be under serious consideration for, for Coach. And when they announced that he was the first interview, you know, that was the sign to me that, okay, he's not the guy. They're giving him his courtesy interview. He's first out of the gate. It was also interesting to me that, that when they then announced, like, Freddie was going to be, like, the eighth interview, I was like, oh, really? He's last. Hmm. So, um, but that ranking right there, this team, if it wasn't for all the turnovers in the first six weeks, this team would have probably finished 32nd in overall defense. It was Ben, but don't break. They had their great moments. They had some great stops. But at the end of the day, Greg Williams' defense was underperforming. Um, and that's why, at the end of the day, when fans can't, you know, some fans were pining for Greg Williams to get the job. That's why he's not here. It wasn't because of his job as the interim head coach. It was because of his job as defensive coordinator. Yes, and, and I'll tell you what, and we'll get back to the numbers in a second, but I want to stay on the Greg Williams point. And while, again... I think justifiably so. Greg Williams will never have to buy a beer in this town again uh, because of the job that he did. People will remember him as starting this turnaround, but it's a thing where in talking to people, and again, you're going to snicker when I preface this part, I heard this a few more times at the bowling alley last night. Why didn't they just stay with Greg Williams if they wanted continuity? And I try explaining to people, Freddie Kitchens, no offense to Greg Williams, he's the real gem in terms of the, the intellectual part of this, the scheming, the things that he brought to bear, and he's going to be somebody else's head coach in a year if he's not the Browns' head coach, and you lose the continuity. So, I mean, the, the, the notion that, again, it was a mature decision on their part. We'll talk more about this in a second after I finish the statistics, but it was mature in the sense of realizing we live in the real world. There's still Ohio State fans that are like, oh, if only Tom Herman hadn't taken the Texas job. Well, that's what happens. You move up in the world when you earn it. And Freddie Kitchens was going to move up to become somebody's head coach with the track record he was putting together. And the Browns very wisely said, let it be us then. That's correct. Because how, And we'll get back into this more. But how often do we as Browns fans look back at all the coaches we've had here that are excelling in other places and players that we had here that are now starting and doing well in other places, and we say, "Well, I don't understand what happened. Why didn't we have them? Why didn't we keep them?" You know, I, we could argue that the that hiring Freddie Kitchens was actually the bold move and the forward-thinking one that recognized, um, you know, the future. I think so. I think so. I think that's definitely the case. The Browns were 30th in special teams DVOA which uh, they've already addressed that part of it here. 15th in strength of schedule. We would have expected that to be higher. Now, that's based on the final FDH power rankings and then averaging all that out. You would have expected with seven wins looking at at the start of the year that they would have been higher than 18th on our impressiveness of victories index. But that is, that, that is an index that is 50% how many games you won and 50% your strength of schedule. So, again, you would have thought beginning of the year that might have been borderline top 10, if not top 10, in impressiveness of uh, victories uh, index. But it had something to do with the softening of the schedule. 21st overall in terms of the UQB ranking, which, again, 
I think the first half of the season really kind of pulls that down a little bit. 14th on the power rankings, you know, that's the thing where, again, that is, that is the thing that is all hopefully educated subjective, but subjective. So when you look at it, I think your ranking of 14 is a little high. You I think have so? them, and again, I know your model on how you do it. I have the Browns sort of about 15, 16. Okay. But again, that's just splitting hairs. Um, you know, I, I think the you know the interesting thing to me there is you're, you talk about the strength of schedule and the wins. Um, that is one of the landmines going into where we need to temper the enthusiasm. Um, because basically the Browns got wins over crummy teams. And you know, they beat the teams they're supposed to beat. Right. Quote, unquote. And so, which, hey, that's the first step to, to turning it around, right? Start beating the teams you're supposed to beat. We talk about that, you know, in our our, our, our Bobcats and the MAC, you know, and on their never winning a MAC championship. It's because we beat all the teams we're supposed to beat and then never beat the ones that we need to beat to get over the top. Um, you know, you can fill up your schedule on the Kents and Akron's, and that's basically what you know the Browns did this year. They beat up, they beat the teams that they were supposed to beat, and they came up short against the teams that um, you know they needed to do. You know that, that the wins of the, the New Orleans and you know those types of wins, or you know the, beating the Ravens the second time around, those are the wins that would have got them into the playoffs, and they couldn't get it done. So that is the only you know. That's one of the sort of landmines as we look at forward to 2019 for the Browns and to temper the enthusiasm a little bit, which is they didn't get that big signature win this year that you go, whoa. Um, you know, they didn't topple the Chiefs. You know, they didn't, you know, they didn't beat the Chargers. So, you know, they didn't go to Pittsburgh and perform very well. So that is one thing that Browns fans have to sort of, you know, pump the brakes on some of the enthusiasm. I think so. I really think so. And, uh, again, the way that they're progressing with another strong offseason, with the way that the AFC North is coming back to them at just the right point in history, all these things add up to what should be a, an outstanding 2019 and, and a season where we as the fans are going to go into it saying playoffs are bust. But, yes, you are absolutely right. And, again, People look at, again, Bob, Bob Glassman, one of our uh, FDH Lounge dignitaries who uh, is, is a professional pessimist, says, oh, yeah, well, the offensive line might have been the second best in football this year, according to Pro Football Focus, but uh, hardly anything in the way of disruptive injuries. What are the likelihood of that in two years in a row? And he's basically right, although I also pointed out to him, they came into the season with a gaping hole at left tackle, the most important spot on the line, and still managed to be second overall by the end of the season. So, theoretically, they're going to enter next season with a much more uh, finished picture in mind. So, I, I, I think that kind of evens up. But you're right. There are positives and negatives that are going to come out. And uh, if you're looking at it with the kind of optimism we are for next year and the expectations, the best you can hope for is that the unexpected good and bad will even itself out. Well, that's right, and Bob's right about the line. I mean, the, the, the grade on that line was all based on the interior play. Um, this was the best three-man interior in football uh, in terms of the grading averages of the left guard, center, and right guard. You had a left guard and a right guard that were the fourth and fifth-rated guards in the league. Um, Treader was the ninth-rated center, so the sum total of the three of them, they made the best interior. And Trevor played half the season on, on practically a broken ankle. The guy didn't. The guy didn't practice all week except 
except for Friday, and then played on Sundays. Uh, and anyone who's ever played on a high ankle sprain knows how excruciatingly painful that is. And this guy's dealing with 340-pound nose tackles. So his performance, Trevor, uh, you know, tip of the cap to manning up. And, um, you know, it, it, it kind of actually makes me laugh. There was a moment, and I don't remember exactly the line, but uh, there was a moment in Hard Knocks, and, and I'd love to go back and find it. Of course, I don't have it taped. Um, but I, there was a moment when um, it was John Dorsey. Somebody was like, they had like a marshmallow or something. I forget exactly the context, but they were like, they gave it to like Treader, and they were like, yeah, this is you, for you since you're so soft. <laughs> wow. And I didn't know if that was just if that was just one of those man to man challenges and Treader stepped up or I don't know, you know, busting his chops or, I've gotta go back and find the scene, but I remember at the time going, Damn, did he just tell the Stalky Center that he soft like a marshmallow? Damn Wow. Um <laughs> but um, you know, he gutted it out and played great. But that was what the line, the line's rating was based on that interior play, which we both know is what gets your run game going. That's right. Um, now, all that being said, here's the irony in that. Our guards didn't rate so great on on run protect, on the run, on the run blocking game. Right. They, they were basically the top two in pass blocking, but in essence, middle of the pack on, on run blocking, which I think shines a light then on really just how special Nick Chubb is. And, um, you know, so the, the tackles the tackles were the weak link, but Bob's point is correct. You're going to have, that's another reason to temper going into 19. We're going to have injuries. We're going to lose guys this year where we didn't really lose anybody but for a couple weeks and you know you lost a corner here you lost a corner there other guys stepped in every team has injuries but we haven't had the hey we just lost Miles Garrett for 10 games right Right. we didn't have the the guys that are the core critical players you know they play, you know Batonio played the whole season Garrett played the whole season um, obviously Mayfield didn't get hurt you know so we you know he's right, and that's another thing that you know we, you and I like to talk about the the, 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 the return to the mean, right? You know, right. eventually these things catch up. Whether it's your ability to get turnovers or it's injuries, you know, you have a season without a lot of injuries, and then all of a sudden you have one where you know you're like the Falcons, and everybody, you know, it's like a you're like a mash unit, um, and, and and that's just how it works out in the NFL. It is, and it, it will be interesting to see how that plays out. You know, for next year and, and seeing how these things are, are again, the, the, I'll take the unexpected good and the unexpected bad evening out. I'll, I'll take that uh, with a smile on my face if it, if it plays out that way. But as far as going into next year, to bring this whole thing full circle, again, we've alluded to this a little bit, and that being the reaction of, uh, and, and again, I come into this as a pretty bitter person based on what I call the clickbait national media, the vulture media. After the last couple of years of how they did everything they could to try to put their thumb on the scale to get LeBron out of Cleveland, they were resentful. I was I was just happy out of spite every June they had to come here because I knew how badly they didn't want to be in Cleveland. But, but again, the vultures feasting on the bones, picking at it, getting their clickbait... Uh, 
stuff here, which we're going to have that because of not just hard knocks this year, but Baker Mayfield being the quarterback. I get that that comes with the territory. But the complete ignorance of everyone in the clickbait media about the Freddie Kitchens thing. Oh, I thought they had their pick of anybody. Why wouldn't you go for a bigger name if you had your pick of anybody? Uh, clickbait Cowherd going on his show, baselessly throwing out, oh, well, nobody really wanted to interview for this job. Listen, by and large, the people who interviewed for this job were the ones the Browns wanted to interview for this job. The Browns didn't request interviews of a lot of guys. Maybe because they didn't want to hurt their feelings by turning them down, whatever the case may be. Uh, as far as I know, the Browns got a chance to interview with anybody they wanted to interview with, and Freddie Kitchens was the pick. It's the analytics guys, and, and, and not even necessarily that. I, I don't even necessarily just mean that, but the smarter ones, the people who were paying attention, the pro football focus types, they were the ones. Peter King was the first one in the national media, I think, to throw it out maybe about two weeks ago, of like, hey, maybe it'll be Freddie Kitchens, and maybe it should be. So basically, the smarter you are in the, in, the, in the football media, the more you follow football, the more impressed you are with what the Browns did. The more of being a clickbait guy you are, the less impressed you are, and you're going to the uh, always ignorant take of, who's Freddie Kitchens? I mean, look, that's something I said in October, right? And that guy made me eat my words, and I don't think there's ever been anybody that I, I've been happier uh, to have make me eat my words. Freddie Kitchens on the body of work, on what he did, and there's this whole thing like, what about when the league adjusts to Freddie Kitchens? You know what the number one thing he brought to this was? Imagination. And that is an endlessly renewable resource, Chris. If you got imagination and you got balls, you're going to keep coming up with new things and better things. And Freddie Kitchens strikes me as the kind of guy who's going to be drawing up stuff on a piece of cardboard all the way from now until training camp. So uh, I, I could not be happier under the circumstances uh, that the Browns didn't step on their own Johnson in the coaching hunt the way they usually do. Well, all right, and you've got, you, um, there's a lot to unpack there. You've got two different uh, uh, main points, and I'm going to tackle them individually. One is the media reaction, and then one is the actual process. Um, I'll start with the process, because that's the most important part as it relates to the Browns. Uh, you know, everybody came out of this thing saying, well, John Dorsey's coming here with his list. He knows who he wants. Okay? There's no doubt that he came with a prospect list. Any good GM is constantly looking at their list for coaches, for talent in college ranks. You know, he obviously did that with quarterback. I mean, the guy had gone and watched Baker Mayfield like you know, 14 times. You know, um, so any good GM is constantly got these sort of you know reviews and rankings, and is reaching out to people that know different people in the profession and kind of keeping tabs. You never know when you're going to have a guy leave and you need to replace a guy or you got to fire a guy. So, But the idea that John Dorsey came in with this list and he knew exactly who he wanted to hire and, you know, he knows what he's doing and John Dorsey we trust. And so, so if, you, if, if the in John Dorsey you trust is, is the line, then you should be very happy with how this process played out because it showed that he had a list of people he wanted to look at. I'll give you Stefanski. I guarantee you he was on his list. He had probably been recommended to him by Brad Childress as a guy to keep his eyeballs on. So he was on his list. And they and they asked for an interview with him. And he had some other guys. That he, you know, Dan Campbell. I'm telling you right now, Dan Campbell is a guy that John Dorsey had on his list that he had his eyeball on as a possible future coach. And that's why they interviewed him. 
Um, as you know, I, I kind of thought Dan Campbell was going to be the guy. Um, and I thought they would probably match up Dan Campbell and keep Freddie on as offensive coordinator. Now, I'm not disappointed with how it worked out. Um, but what it showed is a maturity on John Dorsey's part, which is he came in with some names and they actually went through a actual search interview process, kept an open mind, and made a decision based on long-term, not preconceived, this is the guy I'm bringing in. Early on, the national media, because again, they're lazy, or, you know, sometimes it's lazy and sometimes it's just they don't follow it as closely as they should. But what did you hear? Oh, it's going to be Mike McCarthy. How many talking heads are like, oh, it's done, you know, these guys know each other. Green Bay, you know, therefore, it's Mike McCarthy. He got fired. He's going to be the next Browns coach. Book it here, book it here. You know, Vegas is like, oh, yeah, it's going to be Mike McCarthy. Uh, well, first of all, you know, and you and I had discussed this off air. Who's to say that, that John Dorsey likes Mike McCarthy? Right. Just because they were together in Green Bay doesn't mean that those guys even liked each other. We don't know that. A. B. And it was pretty obvious to me early on. Mike McCarthy was out there for weeks. John Dorsey could have, you know, interviewed him, you know, could have brought him in. And if he was the guy, the season would have ended. And Mike McCarthy, I'm telling you right now, if it had been preconceived notions, he would have been hired the next day, right? Right. Boom, done. When that didn't happen, I knew Mike McCarthy was not going to be the coach. And we heard him for weeks. Oh, it's going to be Mike McCarthy still. No, it isn't, because they would have done it already. He's been out there. Um, So, again, that's lazy analysis. The other one that I think is even worse, because it doesn't even make sense, is the Josh McDaniels. You heard again and again, oh, the Browns have real interest in Josh McDaniels. They have real, boy, they're going to bring him in. He's going to be the guy, you know. It's like, how can you logically say that as a, you know, paid analyst, talking head, NFL expert, quote-unquote, when you know that John Dorsey's agent was McDaniels' agent, and McDaniels did what he did, to John Dorsey's good friend Chris Ballard in Indianapolis and left him at the altar, and then John Dorsey's agent fired Josh McDaniels as a client. John Dorsey, there's no way through that kind of scenario, two people he is close to, right, and his agent and his friend Chris Ballard, would then say, boy, McDaniels is my guy. i got to have him. There is no I, Listen, you, you got to put the human element in these things. And John Dorsey would have known the inside inside details of how that all happened and what went down. So the fact that they never even called didn't surprise me at all. I, I would have been surprised had they even interviewed the guy. Um, so what I liked about this approach was Dorsey clearly went into this looking for guys who fit what he's trying to do, setting up the Browns for the future. And he had an, he clearly had a list but he, that he developed, but he had an open mind. And clearly they went through the process and decided that the most important thing, I think everybody agrees with this, the most important things that Brody kept saying about this coaching search were, one, they've got to have, you know, you'd prefer to have someone who is innovative from an offensive standpoint um, in the new modern NFL. Freddie Kitchens did that. He was innovative. He, As you said, he was imaginative. He made adjustments. There were other teams that started copying stuff that Freddie Kitchens was doing. Freddie Kitchens, in the second half of the season, the Browns offense in the last eight games was the second highest rated offense in the NFL. Yep. Number two. And when you look at that, okay, Freddie checks that box. Offensive innovator, right? Got mm-hmm. the most out of this team and the talent. 
right? We love that. Okay, done. You know, one of the other things that the talking heads talk about, well, you got to go, you got to get somebody younger that can stay with the team, and, you know, there's another check for Freddie. What's the other thing that everybody kept saying is very important? They've got to have a good relationship with their, your franchise quarterback. You've got to have a bond. They've got to be able to have a working relationship for years to come. You know, using the Mike McCarthy, you know, Aaron Rodgers falling out as an example. You know, you better have a coach that your quarterback likes and they like each other and they work well together. Oh, wait, who would that be? Freddie Kitchens, check. So the reality is, is even though Freddie's meteoric rise, if you will, you can call 14 years in the league a meteoric rise. Um, he, you know, paid his dues. He coached under some great people, some, under some great coaches. I have no doubt that he learned a lot. And when he got his chance, he made the most of it and showed us all what he could do. Kudos to him. And kudos to the Browns for recognizing all of those things and not downplaying a guy because somehow he didn't, you know, he didn't the right national media people as a sexy pick. Or, you know, I guess, I don't know, maybe in today's modern I don't know, I'll uh, Kingsbury or today, you got to look like a GQ model. Is that what everybody's interested in now? Uh, you know, I think there's some national bias as it relates to Freddie uh, because he doesn't look like a GQ model. So I think there's a certain, there's a mental bias that they, they downplay him because you know, he's overweight or I don't know what, you know. I mean, hell, I mean, psychologists will tell you that's a real thing. Yeah. So, you know, the reality is, is Freddie, Freddie won the room not only from what he did, but what he brings to the table. And my guess is right now, John Numbers is trying to figure out a way to help and support Freddie as he's moving into a new role. Because none of us actually know when someone's ever been a head coach, and there are always lots of those that come into the NFL, how they're going to do eventually. Maybe Fred ends up not being a good head coach. We don't know. The same way, you know, the Rams can say whatever people know that, John, that Sean McVay was going to be a good head coach. You don't know it until they do it. So I think John Dorsey right now is trying to figure out a way to, you know, support Freddie, grow into the position, and to be as good as he can be. Um, because clearly John Dorsey, in his first coaching hire, the easy and lazy thing for him to be would have been to take the sexy pick, right, the big name. Right. And everybody would have said, oh, great job, John Dorsey. John Dorsey has, you know, for, you know I know this is a family program. He, the guy's got balls of steel. Yep. He has no problem in doing what he thinks is the right thing. He decided... I don't care what anybody thinks. I'm taking Freddie Kitchens, and I'm taking him for the long term. And, I, you know, time will tell. I think it's probably in the position that we're in as a franchise, probably the right pick. He's the continuity to stick around. The reason the Browns were any good in the second half is all because of Freddie Kitchens and what he drew up and how he worked with Dave Mayfield. So I applaud the Browns. I applaud the Haslam's for letting John Dorsey do what he needed to do in this process. And then I applaud the Haslam's for finally getting it right and getting out of the way. And now the Freddie Kitchens will now, like a real NFL franchise, will now report to the GM and not this cockamamie, you know, I report to the owner, you report to the owner, everyone reports to the owner, the janitor reports to the owner, we're all doing our own thing. There's finally a real structure in place, a real manager structure that could work. And that, to me, shows that ownership now has, you know, John Dorsey now has the complete trust of ownership. Yeah, as, is, well, as well he should, you know, and no and more. And I told you, I, I'm not on the John Dorsey cult like a lot of people are now in this town. He's made mistakes in his first year. Most of his moves have been great. He's made some 
Um, but And he's going to make more. But the reality is, by and large, he's doing a good job, and he's earned the trust, and now we're going to get an opportunity to have a normal functioning franchise. Exactly. So that's the first... That leads us, that's the, so that's the first pro, The process, yeah. I think, worked. It was professional, and I think they made the right choice based on the, 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 the paradigm of the new league and, and what their choices were. Because to your point, you could have brought in Dan Campbell, made Freddie the offensive coordinator for this year. It would have been, a, you know, look, that would have been a promotion for Freddie. You know, he would have gotten more money, his career would be on an upward trajectory, and then he would have left within, certainly within two years, if not after next season. And then you're back to now having your young quarterback learning a new offense with a new offensive coordinator, and now we've provided for continuity for a young quarterback, which is the most important thing. So they got it right from that perspective. Now, let me flip gears to the national media right? and their take on it. Look, you, it, it's a lot of this is clickbait. A lot of it is to say the outrageous thing and get people to click on it. To Skip Bayless saying, you know, LeBron's not even the top ten player in NBA history. I don't like LeBron, but, you know, he is one of the top three players ever in the NBA. Right? If not possibly the, the top-rated player. They do the same thing with this, right? I mean, I agree with you. There's an anti-Cleveland bias. You know, they get Other than when they like to go, oh, yeah, look at the Indians in the World Series. Oh, yeah, look at the good old Cleveland will tax you on the head. Other than that, they want nothing but bad things for Cleveland because they enjoy having a punching bag. They love to be able to make the jokes about the river was on fire. Okay, the last thing that happened was 1968. Yep. Okay, can we move on? That was 50 years ago. Okay, and oh, by the way, Cleveland wasn't the only place that had a a body of water catch fire because of chemical spill. Right. You know, duh. So, you know, they love the fact that Cleveland is always there. It's a convenient punching bag, and they're doing it this time around. Well, look, they hired Pretty Kitchen, so Browns are going to brown. You know, boy, they really blew it again. I don't see that. What I see and what they miss is, as you point out, the analytics of how this was the second best on offensive football, the second half of the season. What they miss is Freddie, you know, they call him, like, young and inexperienced. Okay, 14 years in the league as a coach? Right. Coaching are some great coaches. Is that young and inexperienced at 44? I don't think so. Um, so that means, again, false statement. Um, you know, they talk about, uh, you know, that, you know, boy, you could have gotten a big name. A big name does not equate to success. I mean, that's a, that's a false, you know. Would would you would Adam Gase have been a better pick for the no. Browns? No. No. But he would have been the sexy new, you know, the big name that we had to go out and get. Or why? Um, so you know they obsess over those things, and a lot like they're trashing of Baker Mayfield when we drafted him. Most most national people did. Boy, the Browns blew it again. But did they? Oh wait, no. He finished the season as top twelve quarterback as a rookie. Mm. So, terrible hire, terrible hire. Uh, you know, they could have gotten Mike McCarthy. Um, so, you know, and again, some of that is clickbait. Some of that is not really diving into the reality of how he how he was a season, along with Greg Williams. You know, give him part of the credit for, for writing the ship, for creating an innovative offense and getting the most out of Baker Mayfield as a rookie. Got to give him credit for that stuff, and they don't. They don't give him any credit for it. Um, and so, you know, we're just, it, it, look, it's, I, I don't, there's part of me, Rick, 
that'll tell you, I actually kind of like it because I think it just adds more fuel that burns so hot inside of Baker Mayfield. Yep. That, that the, you know, he loves Freddie, and that's clear. I mean, he Freddie's his boy. And the fact that, you know, Colin Coward and Adam Schindler and everybody else is trashing this, let me tell you right now, it's, it's, Baker Mayfield is just going to come out even red hotter on this. Um, and he's going to not only want to prove them all wrong about himself, but he's going to want to back up his boy. So I think for us, it's going to work out just fine. Okay? Um, But, you know, the national media is going to do what it's going to do. They're not going to have the Cleveland Browns to kick around anymore. They're just, they're not going to. Um, It's a new day. You mentioned the NFC, the the AFC North is coming back to the pack. The Steelers are a hot mess. The Bengals are a train wreck. They've gone back to being the Bengals. Um, And the Ravens, have a gimmick quarterback that unless he learns how to throw accurately, consistently, that that whole thing isn't going to last long as we saw the Chargers were the first team to get a second bite of Lamar Jackson and they took care of him. So I think the coaching search worked out well. I think the maturity of ownership in this case seems like it's coming along, that they've learned their lessons. And I think we finally have a front office that is unified and focused. And for the first time in 20 years, uh, a Browns fan can feel confident in not only having ownership that's not screwing things up, a front office and a GM that have a plan and seem to know what they're doing, and they have a franchise quarterback and 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 a head coach who is able to, who is literally a leader in the league in terms of offensive innovation. Very much so, and uh, I'm going to give you my closing thoughts here, uh, Larry King style, just kind of randomly, uh, based on a couple things there you were talking about and some other things. Closing thoughts, cross-sport comparisons, uh, the way that uh, the NBA and the NFL have been almost parallel the last two to three to four years in terms of offensive innovation. Uh, life comes at you fast. Mike McCarthy equals Tom Thibodeau right about now. Not that neither of them is going to be able to adjust, but they got to prove they can adjust. By the way, Lamar Jackson equals Ben Simmons. If you're a quarterback, you got to be able to pass. If you're a superstar, you got to be able to shoot. Both of them, again, I don't rule it out, but it's a hard thing to learn uh, at that level. Uh, Adam Gase, uh, again, his chief qualification, as far as I can see, for his quote-unquote success in the NFLs, he knew just the right amount of cinnamon to put in Peyton Manning's latte uh, every morning in Denver there. That was his most important job, and he did get it right, and that's why Peyton Manning will vouch for him to this very day. Uh, again, well, we even said it at the time, like, well, Adam Gay's great offensive coordinator, like, Peyton Manning's the offensive coordinator in Denver. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or are we kidding? <laughs> well, exactly, exactly. He's gravy trained off that, the two jobs undeservedly now. Nick Chubb, I, I will say this again, uh, if healthy, top five back in the league. Remember, he was supposed to be the second coming of Todd Gurley at Georgia, and he was before he got hurt. And guess what? We saw what he looked like finally shaking off the effects of that injury. It can take a running back a year or two. Uh, and again, if healthy, top five back in the league. Running backs with that kind of size and speed are unicorns. The Browns got a steal there. Uh, again, John Dorsey, credit where credit's due. You know I wanted more uh, superstar punch last year in the offseason. They didn't go really do that. 
I thought it should have been uh, Sam Darnold with the pick. Look, if the Jets and, and Adam Gase don't ruin him, Sam Darnold is still going to be amazing in this league. But Baker Mayfield, my biggest question was the height. He has proven me wrong, and I am thrilled. I said at the time, there's a pathway to him proving me wrong, unlike Brandon Whedon and Johnny Manziel and all these other chodes that they took. And thankfully, I was at least right about that. Peyton Ma- or that uh, Baker Mayfield is was able to prove me wrong, and he did. And last thing on Freddie Kitchens here. Coaching trees, we look at this, this guy came out of three of them. Arians, Saban, and Parcells. Not too bad as far as guys to be able to learn from, take things from, and uh, kind of go forward. So that's my thoughts on that and why I think the Browns are in good shape heading into next year. Well, I share your thoughts on Sam Darnold. We both would have taken Sam Darnold, um, and we both even said at the time that Baker Mayfield, if he was six three and a half would have been the would have been the unquestioned number one pick. It was always about the height um, for us. Now, some of it was about you know the oh the off field. I never considered any of that stuff anything. Um, the crotch grab, like around the world, like who cares? Um, it's, you know, it was obvious his teammates absolutely loved him and would fight to the death for him, and that's obvious in the Browns. Way by week eight, uh, you know, you've got you've got defensive veterans on the Browns saying on national radio, "That's my dog, yo. That's my boy. That's my quarterback." You know, he owned that team by week eight. When you have multi-year veterans like that's my guy, you know, as a rookie, he is just instantly taken over that locker room, and it was his team by week eight. No questions, even even. No doubt about it. So, do I think Sam Darnold's going to still be a great quarterback in this league? Yeah, I do. I mean, to your point, unless the Jets ruin it. Um, he's got all the skills. He's young. He played very well this year, by and large, for a rookie quarterback on a lousy team. Sky's the limit for Sam Darnold. You know, you and I talked about something in this year with all the quarterbacks. You know, we can see potential in Josh Allen, even though we have real concerns about the accuracy. Right. Um, Baker Mayfield was the height. Uh, you know, Sam Darnold was, you know, the turnovers. But we even said in all these draft shows, you know, this whole, this may be a year where all five first-round quarterbacks could be good. You know, they could all end up being good. Um, but a lot of that comes to being in the right situation, et cetera, et cetera. Really, right now, the guy with maybe the big question mark hanging over him, who everybody said was the most NFL-ready, is Josh Rosen. So, uh, you know, that just shows you how the worm can turn on these things. Uh, you know, fine, final thoughts. Uh, you know, clearly, uh, the Browns are on the right trajectory. Um, talked about having all the pieces in place. Uh, I want to. I want to. I want to warn you that even though they have a ton of cap space, you're not going to see the pricey veteran bonanza out of John Dorsey again. Right. He's going to pick up one or two pieces, a la a Landry, probably a you know uh, a defensive player. I pointed out to you the kid from Denver that I would keep an eye on. Right. Um, there's going to be some guys like that. He's not going to go crazy on that stuff, but he's going to pick up some critical pieces just like last year. That's his style in free agency. Look for that again. Adding depth, adding some quality, adding a few quality starters, and then going into the draft and looking, for, you know, looking for the gems. Um, and we have time, obviously, you know, in future shows to kind of dive into some of that stuff. Um, but uh, you know, the uh, that's 
what I look for, you know, coming up in the, in the free agency. I think that model will continue to hold. Um, you know, lastly, you know, early on, looking at the schedule, looking at this team, if they make the rights, if they make some good off-season moves, I haven't settled on a final prediction yet, but I'm, I feel like the floor for this team is about 7-9 and nine and the ceiling is about 11-5. and five. And somewhere in between is where they're going to land. And I'm kind of leaning towards nine and seven and ten and six. I haven't made up a final decision on that yet. Uh, let's see how the off season goes. But I think for Browns fans, the expectation should be at this point in time having a franchise quarterback, having an innovative head coach offensively, um, having some key defensive pieces in place, and having the the NFC North sort of coming apart of the seams a little bit. Um, the expectation should be AFC champions, uh, North champions, as well as a playoff spot. That should be the expectation. I don't think it's unreasonable. Um, and, um, you know, I think that's the trajectory that the Browns are, are on to going into 2019. I agree with all of that and what you just said. And, again, as far as free agency goes, one of the things that they've been successful, my last note is this. We've talked about this sort of football's equivalent of post-height prospects in baseball. Greg Robinson, Brashad Perriman, two pedigree guys, former first-round picks given up as busts, both uh, having revivals in Cleveland this year. One of the guys I look for in free agency potentially, coming back to the state of Ohio, Bradley Roby, another guy. He has not lived up to the billing of being a first-round NFL uh, cornerback, but uh, again, that's the guy you want to take a chance on maybe, somebody that's shown in the past that he has the talent and the ability. Can you get something out of him? And uh, again, the Browns were two for two with Perriman and Greg Robinson this year who played very important roles on this team. But, uh, again, I, I Let me won't... cap that off, actually, with one other comment. Yeah. And this will be the first time in, in the 20 years that, that I've been a Browns fan. Because of Baker Mayfield and Jarvis Landry and John Dorsey, Miles Garrett, that's all, and probably mostly Baker, the Browns will no longer have to pay the Browns premium for a free agent. Yes. We will not have the Tony Jeffersons of the world saying, I'm going to take less money to go to Baltimore because I ain't going to Browns for more money. Those days are over. Having to overpay for an underperforming free agent veteran, those days are over. A guy like Baker Mayfield is your quarterback. Guys want to play for him. They want to play with him. They want to be a part of it. And so the days of the Browns premium, are, are they're gone. And I haven't heard anybody talk about that, but that's going to be important going into this offseason. Well, the other thing, too, in terms of, and my final note will be this, in terms of the heritage of the Browns, in terms of what it would mean because of the historical glory of this franchise, as far removed as it is, this is one of these things where, and I think players take note of this kind of thing as well, what it's like to be a part of something that historic. You think athletes aren't aware of the fact that, say, for example, Richard Jefferson will always have, like, godlike stature in this town for being a part of that? Like, the way that you're remembered, what, what your legacy as a player is, if you're on the first Browns Super Bowl team, holy crap. Like, like that's not going to help you if you're borderline for Canton or not. You know what I mean? I, I agree with you, but I don't think that, I don't think most players think that deep. I mean, I think there's some that do that understand the history of the Browns. But I think that we've seen that, you know, our players right now, they're all, they're all basically millennials and Gen X. <laughs> and, uh, Good point. You know, the reality is, you know, the reality is, is that we have players this year going 
going into the second Ravens game that the press had to tell them, you know, the Ravens used to be the Browns. <laughs> well, I didn't know that. They didn't know that. Yeah. What? What do you mean the Ravens used to be the Browns? I think in context of that, I think old men like you and I <laughs> understand that. I don't think a 28-year-old understands that at all. Okay. So, not to, not to, not to, but, you know, not to, you know, disagree with your point per se, but the reality is, is that I don't think most of these young men uh, think in those terms. The reality is right now in an extreme world, uh, you know, they want to be part of something fun and exciting and, and, you know, a bit sexy. And right now the Browns are becoming a sexy thing. Baker Mayfield and Deuce Landry and, and all these other guys. I mean, and that's what guys want to be a part of. They want to be a part of a winner and they want to be part of something sexy. And, and, and dear Lord, it, you know, the Browns are on the precipice of being the new sexy thing in the, in the NFL. They really, really are. And that's the most amazing part of all of this. So, Again, a pleasure breaking down the Browns with you, uh, Chris. Uh, it was a great season, uh, as it turned out in the end. And I will just say, belated hat tip to fellow FDH Lounge dignitary, Anthony Patrone, who was right for all the wrong reasons. Anthony's the only guy I know who wanted Hugh Jackson back, who bought Hugh Jackson's stupid excuse that he didn't have any talent to work with in 2017, who wasn't bothered by Hugh Jackson being a backstabber. All these things. You know what? If it hadn't gone the way it went, we probably wouldn't be where we are right now. It's amazing to say that and to believe that, but we almost we needed the misery of the first half of the season and Hugh Jackson for Freddie Kitchens to get a chance and everything to work out the way that it did. So in the long run, for all the wrong reasons, Anthony was wrong. Uh, Anthony was right, rather, and I was wrong, and everybody else was, was wrong. We needed the first half of Hugh to just flush it all out once and for all. However counterintuitive well, that you, may be. Hugh Jackson. Yes. Thank you, Hugh Jackson. Thank you, Sashi Brown. Thank you for, for your part in this, and uh, onward and upward we go. Thank you so much for being a part of this, Chris. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in for FDH Lounge Mini Episode number 1088. As we bring the show to a close, we would like to extend our deepest gratitude to NBC, CBS, ABC, Fox, all clear channel affiliates, TNT, TBS, USA, UPN, Deadspin.com, YouTube.com, YTMND.com, MySpace.com, various blogs, Fox News, CNN, CNBC, MSNBC, IamBoard.com, Billboard.com, Google.com, ESPN, ESPN2, ESPN News, ESPN Classic, NBA TV, NFL Network, Sports Time Ohio, Athlon Magazine, Comedy Central, Cartoon Network, The Boomerang Channel, QVC, BET, The Spice Channel, Steno Notebooks, Manwich, Papermate Office Supplies, Waitresses, Strippers, Bartenders, Garbage Men, Janitors, Microwave Popcorn, The Writers of The Office, Scrubs, Entourage, My Name is Earl, Oz, Metalocalypse, and The Boondocks, Aquafina, and The Periodic Table of Elements. 